Genesis 2, 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, uh, took one of its ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this is the word of the Lord. And let's jump in to our sermon in Genesis chapter two. We've been following along the book of Genesis so far. We've been um, looking at ideas much more than verses. Okay, so Patrick started us off with creation. Just the, the concept of creation. And hopefully, as Patrick did well, each ser sermon in this series is expository. It's from the text. It's right there. But we get the chance, we get a little bit of freedom over the next few weeks to be able to identify some key concepts from Scripture, show the texts that, that illuminate those concepts, and then teach on those concepts. And this is not something we do regularly. We love preaching the text and we love letting the main point of the text be the main point of our sermon. And hopefully that's the case here. However, we get the chance to be a little more selective. And I think we're going to do this as a rhythm more over the summer. We get the chance to be a little more selective with the topics that we choose. We get to go a little bit more uh, what I call topically expository. Uh, it's, it's, I don't think anybody else has that name. It's just something I, I duct tape together. But um, the, the idea is that every once in a while we get to just hit on theology. We get to hit on these main concepts and ideas. And so we've covered creation. We've covered cr the creation of men and women as image bearers of God. We've covered the idea of work. That was last week. And here, this week, we get to cover the idea of, of, of gender roles in marriage, something that's obviously a hot topic in our culture. And I think that our culture as a whole is very confused about gender, about what it is. Um, and in some ways that's understandable because we've stepped away from God's design. We've stepped away from what God says gender is, what God says a man is, for instance, or what God says a woman is. We've stepped away from those things and now it's, it's understandable, from a certain standpoint, it's understandable that there's gonna be confusion now over those very things that God has defined that God has told us what they are. For instance, early this year, a former presidential candidate, okay, this person is no longer a presidential candidate, but a former presidential candidate gave a round of applause 
to a nine-year-old transgender boy, okay? He's a boy, but he believes himself, along with his parents, to be transgender. And he was introduced to her on CNN um, during a presidential candidate forum about gay and transgender issues. And so this particular presidential candidate applauded when this nine-year-old boy who is either being told or he believes himself to be a girl and she, and she I, I, I gave it away, her gender, the, the candidate applauded that. She says, and he says to her, my name's Jacob and I'm a nine-year-old transgender American. All right, Jacob, said the candidate, applauding. Now, I'm not interested in even saying who the candidate is. I, I don't have a, the, the goal here is not to, to, to choose a, a particular presidential candidate and, and push somebody up or down. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. The point is that we're in a place in human history when an American presidential candidate trying to win votes, right, trying to win votes from the American people can celebrate a nine-year-old boy who claims to be a girl or whose parents have pressured him to do so. And that's something that, I already said she, I already gave that part away, sorry, that she believes is gonna win her votes with the American people, okay? So I'm saying far less about the particular candidate and far more about the fact that to this candidate, she believes that that's the way forward. That's what people are looking for in a particular presidential candidate. And that's shocking and should be shocking to us. But then again, it shouldn't be, right? We as a people are confused. We are a society that has rejected what God's word says about boys on the one hand or men and, what's our, and what God says about girls, women. We've rejected those categories, okay? That's, if you just, across the world, if you do the polls, if you talk to the people, probably outside of the church, you're gonna see that mentality. You're gonna see a confusion. It's a construct, it's been, it's been made up, it's something that cultural places, what does it mean to be a boy? Well, culture tells a boy that he needs to be certain things, and we reject that, right? That's what society will say. We are a society that has thrown off, in that particular area, what God has created us to be. And now we're swimming in, in sort of this... This, this soup of not knowing which way is up and which way is down, and some of the definitions completely contradict other definitions of, you know, other groups of people that are, um, you know, that are, that are in our, our society claiming other truths, but nobody seems to care that these truths completely contradict one another. But it isn't just the world that is actually confused about these things. And this is where I'm going to get a little bit more um, controversial. Christians are confused in a slightly different way, but in some ways there's similarities. Many evangelical gospel-believing Christians are confused about what it means to be a man versus a woman, specifically in the context of marriage. 
Okay, so there is a there is a belief within evangelical Christianity. These are brothers and sisters. These are those that 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 would agree with many other truths of Scripture. But when it comes to the truth that a man is different from a woman, and that a woman is different from a man, and that within marriage there are certain roles that in those differences they play, they would seek to flatten it all out and say there really isn't a difference. You can flop, you can flip flop the roles, and everything is okay. And I hope you can see that that's not the same thing as arguing that a boy can be a girl at nine years old. I'm not saying that. But I am saying in the same way that the world is confused about what it means to be a boy, that there's something, there's something inherent about a boy that is to be, we are to help a boy to grow to certain things and certain standards and become a man, which also means something in our culture and girls, vice versa. There is also a confusion. Christians, some Christians are having a confusion within marriage. And it's a similar kind of confusion. So what does God's word say? And that's what we have to come back to. We have to argue. We have to, we have to argue the way the Bible argues. We need to define things the way the Bible defines them. And so we have this opportunity now in our text as we're approaching this this subject in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, where scripture is going to say there's something particular about what it means to be a man, and there's something particular about what it means to be a woman. And I understand that this can get controversial. We can chafe under this, right? This can be, I don't know that I like this. You might even say with me at the end of this, I don't know that I agree with you. But I'm going to do my best to present what I believe to be what Scripture says. And I believe that if we will listen to Scripture on this particular standpoint, it's not going to be uh, something that causes us uh, to, be, to be hurt. It's not going to be something that causes us to, be, uh, to ultimately to suffer within our roles within a particular marriage. It's going to be something that leads to joy. Because as men discover more about what it means to be a man from God's perspective, and as women discover more about what it, what it means to be a woman from God's perspective, they find joy and satisfaction in the fact that not only are they obeying God, but they're actually living in accordance with how God made them which is key. That's one of the reasons we search the scriptures. We want to know about God and our relationship with him, but he's also provided a way of living that we are, are, are called to obey. And there's blessings that come along with that way of living. So Genesis chapter two, verse 18, here's my main point. Here's my main point. It's very simple. And it's basically exactly what I said right here. Scripture defines roles for men and women. Okay, that's, that's just a statement. Scripture defines roles for men and women. Men and women find freedom and joy by living within their God-given roles. Okay, so that's what we're hitting on. We're hitting on the roles that God has given to man, the role that God has given to woman, and this is within the context of marriage. Those of you out there that are single, Scripture has a lot to say to you. And I want to teach scripture. And when we hit a point where we're talking about what it means to be single in the Lord, and some of you might, this might be a point of ache for you. 
that you that you there's a deep desire for perhaps for marriage but you find yourself at this present moment by God's sovereignty to be single i want you to know that that there is a lot that scripture has to say but what we're going to do today is we're going to speak about what God specifically has to say about marriage this is the text that we're in today I want you to know that you are not forgotten, you are cared about deeply, and I believe that as individuals, whether we're a man or whether we're a woman, there are certain things for us, even as single men and women, uh, even as single men and women, perhaps for the rest of our lives. I don't know the future for you, but I do know that scripture has, even in these verses for you, something to aspire to, something to pray and say, Jesus, will you help me? to be sanctified, to be more of that, even if it never ultimately results in the role of me being a husband or the role of me being a wife. But we want you to know that we love you in this church. And there will be plenty to say as we come across scripture, as it speaks to single people, there will be plenty to say and plenty to give from God's word in those areas. So Genesis chapter two, verse 18 Let's look at this. The Lord, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, we just jumped right into that text. Let's get some context of what came just before that. We saw in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, you can actually scan back there in your Bibles if you're following along. Here's what it says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So it's strange that we see now in chapter 2, in the middle of chapter 2, the creation now of woman, when we already saw that in chapter 1. Does that seem strange to anybody? If you look at chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, it, it kind of already declares there that woman was created in the image of God. So why are we hearing about this creation of woman a second time? And here's my short answer. There's longer answers than this. Let me give a couple of words before we move on. This is a quick side note, by the way. Why is it that we get this repeat? Why do we see the story seem to again appear? And my argument is that this is Hebrew storytelling. This is the way Hebrew people would tell a story. They would begin with a statement and then follow up again after coming back to the topic with more detail. Uh, we call it cyclical, cyclical storytelling because you, you come back to the same point but you hit it with more detail than you did before. We tend to value in our, in our day today, we tend to value chronological storytelling. So you, you start at the beginning, then what happened, then what happened, then what happened, then what happened. And it doesn't mean that in, in Hebrew storytelling they don't have that. It's just that a lot of times they will, while being chronological, they will also come back and hit previous themes that they didn't have, that they didn't hit with as much detail before. This is kind of similar to the way you were taught to write papers in school. If, if you were in high school or perhaps in college and you had to write a thesis statement for your paper, some of you remember this, you're shuddering, right? You had to write a thesis statement, what were you doing? Well, you were, you were beginning that paper by saying, here's what the paper's about. Okay, it was, it was short, it was quick, it was just giving the reader of your paper, here's the main idea that the paper's gonna cover. But then what were you doing with the rest of the paper? 
you were then telling them what the paper was about. You were coming back and you were hitting what the paper was all about, but you were doing it with greater detail. So similar to the way we would write a thesis statement and then we would come back and we would hit with greater detail on a paper, that's something like what is happening here, I believe in Genesis. Uh, the author of, of Genesis, Moses, hit in, Gen in Genesis chapter one, he hit the thesis, here's what God did, he created man and woman. But then he's gonna go back in chapter two and he's gonna give us the detailed story of how this actually took place. But there's something in Genesis 1 that I want us to keep in mind. And I want you to see it again in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Specifically put your eyes on verse 27. Genesis 1, 27 established and told us right from the get-go that both an individual man and an individual woman were created in the image of God. Both of them. Man, image of God. Woman, image of God. Therefore, here's what you need to hear today. Whatever we say about the roles that a man plays in a marriage versus the roles that a woman plays in a marriage, do not hear me say that women are somehow subordinate to men in their being and who they are. Because Genesis chapter 1 undercuts any of that kind of thinking. Man and woman as individuals created in the image of God. So that everything we say now in Genesis chapter 2, we got to make sure we have Genesis chapter 1 in our framework, in our thinking. And it keeps us from going out of bounds too far into saying some kind of patriarchal statement about how, you know, how, how men are, are, are somehow greater beings than women are. That's the opposite of what we are trying to say here. And Genesis chapter one is our guide for helping us get at that. So if you hear me, if you hear me say that, then either I'm miscommunicating, okay? If, if, I, if you hear me say that somehow women are lesser in their being than men, then I'm miscommunicating, that, that could be true, or perhaps you misheard. But you do not hear me say that in any way there is a, there is a difference in what we call, and here's a fancy word, I'm gonna throw a, a 50 cent word at you, and then I'm gonna explain it, okay? What we call in our ontology. Now what's ontology? Not oncology, that's cancer. Ontology with a T. What does it mean? What does ontology mean? And I'm teaching you this word because I don't have another word to try to explain and get at what it is, what it is that I'm talking about here. Ontology is the study of the existence of something. So if I say, if men and women are equal in ontology, it means that they're made of the same existence. They are made of the same stuff. They are equal when it comes to their fundamental being of who they are. This is why we both, men and women, will stand before Christ, right? They will, we will stand before him in the judgment. And we will hear if we have come to him and trusted him, we as individual men and women will hear well done, good and faithful servant, enter my kingdom. And we will enter his kingdom as individual men and as individual women. And there is no, you know, well, what does your husband think? Or, you know, that, that whole idea. This is 
when it comes to your standing before God and who you are, you are equal. We are equal. So what we say going forward has to be understood in light of that. Now, let's get back to our verse, Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So at this particular moment, when God is speaking right here in Genesis 2.18, he had only created Adam. Okay. And God declares that something's wrong. He says, it's not good. Now that should key you in. If you've been reading Genesis, if you've already been reading chapter one and you come to chapter two, you should be keyed into this word good because you've seen it over and over and over again. Every day that God creates, he says, and it was good. Every day, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. All the way up to the sixth day where God said it was very good. Why? What's the difference? What happened in the sixth day? Human beings. The, the special creation of human beings. God created them in that day. And at the end of that day, he says, oh my goodness, it is very good. So we've seen God now call things good. So it should shock us that in a perfect world, where everything has been created exactly according to not only God's plan, but according to all of his goodness. Nothing has come in and has thwarted, right? Has, that has come in and, and stepped aside, pushed aside this, this plan of God that he has set forth, right? And by the way, I'm not arguing that Satan comes in and sets aside the ultimate plan of God. But what we're going to see next chapter in the fall is that what seems to be going a certain direction seems to get thwarted, okay? And there's way more theology we could say there. But let me just say that from our standpoint, from a human standpoint, everything's perfect right now. So to hear God say when everything is perfect, it's not good, that should pique our interest, right? It should, our ears should perk up when we see that. It is not good. So we've seen in Genesis all of these steps that God has said, it's good, it's good, it's good. Now, I want to talk for a second about this because this causes some confusion when we're reading Genesis. Here's how the confusion goes. If we're reading, we oftentimes get this. Okay, God is perfect in all he does, right? Everything God does is perfect. At this point, God is the only one acting. There's no other, Satan hasn't yet showed up on the scene. That's not till next chapter. God is the only one acting. Yet God created a situation that was not good. Has that ever confused you? Have anybody ever been reading the text and you just go, wait, what? How can this be true? I thought everything God does is good. How can he be creating something that is not good? Now you could say, well, he, he ends up fixing the problem, right? He, he, whatever was not good, he makes it good. So he, you know, he figured it out, but that's, that's not what we believe about God either. God doesn't make mistakes and then have to go back and go, Ooh, shoot. I shouldn't have done it that way. I got to fix my, I got to fix my error, you know, that I just made. But there's, there's, so here, so if it's not that then, then what is it? What exactly is happening here in this text? And I want to introduce, I think this is a really important biblical concept to introduce you to. So I want to take, this is a quick side note from our men and women discussion here. 
but I want to help you guys understand something that I think is true in a lot of scripture. And we're going to see it here, perhaps for the first time in the Bible as you were reading through. So here it shows up first. And here's the idea. The Bible is God's communication to mankind about who he is, who we are, and what the world is like. So I want you to remember this. The Bible is first and foremost God's communication to us about what he is like, what we are like, and about what the world is like around us. It's a communication. It's God speaking to us. It's God telling us something. Now you might say, well, the Bible's got to be more than that. Where's the gospel, right? Where's the gospel in that? You just said that the Bible is something and you didn't tell us anything about the gospel. God is holy. We are sinners. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Trust Christ and be saved. I would say that that is the center spine of all of scripture right there. And so we learned about who God is. We learned about who we are. We learned about what the world is like. And we learned that Christ came into the world to save sinners. So there is scripture speaking to us about all of those big questions. So what's God doing here then? If that's what the Bible is, if it's a communication to us, then what's he doing here? And my answer is he's communicating. He is communicating to Adam and to all of the readers of the Bible, all of us who are reading scripture, something about who we are as human beings. And he's specifically setting up this scenario so he can communicate a certain truth to Adam. God didn't have to tell us that he first made man, saw that man wasn't good by himself, and then created woman. He didn't have to tell us all that. He could have skipped that whole part in the process, and it never would have looked like he made any kind of, you know, mistake. I put that in quotes. But he didn't. He specifically did, did the job halfway, and then went, oh no, look at that. The job is not good halfway. It isn't good that I just created man and that's all I did. Hint, hint, everybody. Hint, hint. That's not good. Okay, let me finish it and let me make woman. God does this because God knows how to, God knows what man and woman needs, but he needs to communicate that to us. And when he communicates it to us, he sometimes sets up these scenarios where we, where we kind of go like, hey, God, you, you, it's, it looks like you messed up here. And he never messed up. He just is communicating to us. Let me give you another example of this. In Numbers chapter, I think it's 14. Numbers 14, God says to Moses, after the people have sinned, you know, the people left Egypt and they're wandering around in the wilderness. And God says to Moses, Moses, I'm done with them. I'm finished. Step aside. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to make a new people out of you. And then, you know, we'll just go on from there. Now, Moses responds to God by saying, God, and he falls on his face before God. And he says, God, please don't do it. Please don't do it. And, and he even argues something very interesting in his argument with God, like trying to stop God from wiping the people out. He says to God, God, what will the nations around think about your glory? If you do that and God, it says that God relents and he does not destroy the people. Now 
Bible scholars who are maybe not believing the Bible at all are waiting in the wings, ready to pounce on that verse. They're like, we got him. We got a mistake. Here it is. This is what we've been saying all along. The Bible's just written by men, human beings. It's not actually a God-written, inerrant book. See? And they're missing the fact that God, like a father, set up the whole scenario so that Moses would actually fall on his face, plead for his people, and actually say one of the greatest truths that we know to be true. God, it's about your glory. Don't do this. It will diminish your glory. And God smile. It's as if he's smiling in his fatherly heart as he goes, Moses, you got it. You got it. And we call that anthropomorphic language. It's when God acts like a human being in order to usually bring about some response, either something we learn or some response we're supposed to have. And it happens throughout scripture. And it causes a lot of people to doubt because they don't get that God is actually trying to communicate certain truths to human beings. And here, the truth that he's trying to communicate in Genesis chapter 2 is man, human being, male, man, you are not good by yourself. Now, again, I need to say something to single people. If it's true, then, if Genesis 2.18 is true, what does it mean for singles? What does it mean for single men? Because here Adam it is, and here's God saying, to, saying about Adam, oh, that's not good. That's not good. Now, this is difficult, you guys. This is not, there's no verse to go to to say, oh, here's what he meant by that. But here's what the whole of Scripture says, okay? The whole of Scripture says that you as a human being, first and foremost, are satisfied by your relationship to Jesus Christ. He is the one that fills an individual man, an individual woman, whether or not they're married or not. Their trust in him as their, own, their satisfaction and their Lord is the thing which ultimately satisfies and fulfills them. So for God to say, all right, it's, it's not good that Adam is alone, is, is for God to speak in a general sense. How do we know that's true? Because there would be no other human beings if there was no other, if there was no woman created, right? If it was just Adam, it'd be, it would be just Adam forever. And we know that there seemed to be this valuing a God of creating human beings. And so that the two needed to come together, as we're going to see later in the text, in order for that to happen. So on the whole of the human race, God can say, it is not good for one human being to simply be alone. There needs to be another in order for you know, in order for the humans to, to multiply across the face of the earth, right? You've got to have two humans, a man and a woman, in order to have a baby, all right? So in some sense, that is true and always true. And in another sense, if you're hearing that as a single person, don't hear that as God going, I've cast you off. You're, you're somehow insufficient. You're somehow less than, because that's not what the Bible says. We are fulfilled in Christ. And, and there are verses that I want to take you to right now in Isaiah to talk about how what God says to those who are singles in this world. But right now our text is different. So you're going to have to hold off and we'll cover those later. And you can ask those at a later time and maybe in your groups. 
All right, it is not good. It is not good. So what does God actually say then? Let's look at Genesis 2.18 again. He says, I will make a helper. I will make a helper fit for him. Okay, so this is the first mention we get of another human being that is going to be created. Her name is going to be woman. And at first, before Adam even names her woman, God names her a helper. This is huge. If we're trying to get at what are the roles now, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? We're getting now this word helper, and it comes before anything else. And the Hebrew word, etzer, etzer is the Hebrew word, and it, and it genuinely means one who comes alongside and helps. And it's even used by God like God uses it of himself, for instance, in the Psalms, when, when, we, when we say in the Psalms that our Lord is a, is a very present help in times of trouble, that word is speaking about God, and it's the word helper. He is a very present helper in times of trouble. So when we say that a wife is a helper to her husband, we are not communicating any loss in dignity. God himself is a helper. But when God comes along and helps human beings, he comes along in a particular role that assists them in what they're doing in that particular moment. And that's what we see here in Genesis. Uh, God is saying, I need one to come along and to assist Adam. Remember in Genesis 2.15, just a few verses earlier, Adam's been given a task. He's, been, he's there to work and to keep the garden. And now he has a helper, or he's about to have a helper come alongside him for that. Now, just so you know, this is where we get the idea of complementary, complementarity. Some of you may have heard the term complementarianism. It's a huge word, but essentially at the core of it is this idea of a man being given a task to do and a wife coming alongside of him and assisting him in the task that he has been given to do. No loss of dignity, no loss of one is made of better stuff than the other or anything like that. It's simply a coming alongside in different roles to assist in one particular goal. And we call that complementarity. She is complementary to him. It's an incredible thing if you think about it. It's important to note here that she is called a helper and it's not the other way around. Okay. That's important. We got to, we got to state that Adam is not called the helper of, of Eve. Eve is the helper of Adam. I think we see something there. I think we're getting an idea about what men's and women's roles are in their, in marriage. It's not a demeaning term. Like I said, we've seen God, we've seen that God has used it of himself but in our context, it is clear that Adam has been given an authoritative role in pursuing what God has given him to do. Now, how do we know that? Because Adam is given the task of guarding, of working and guarding the garden. That's the task. And ultimately, we believe that he is to expand the garden. The glory of God is to expand outward through his proper working and guarding the garden. Eve is not given an equal, here's your job, Eve. What she's given is the job of assisting and helping Adam in his role. Okay? Now, some of you might go, ah, I'm not buying it. I'm not sure. Okay? In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin, 
God comes after Adam and specifically asks Adam, where are you? Now that question means much more than where are you physically? It means what have you done? Adam, I'm calling you to account for what happened when you botched this whole thing that I had given you to do. So not only do we see Adam given the original task and her to now come alongside of him in that, we see when it all goes haywire, we see God come back for Adam as the one who's ultimately responsible. And we see that he says, Adam, where are you? Similarly, in Romans chapter five, when we see that Jesus is being compared to the one who sinned and caused humanity to fall away, right? So the idea goes like this. One, felt, one caused humanity to fall. Jesus causes humanity to be saved. That's the basic idea of Romans 5 there. But when he compares the two, he doesn't mention Eve. Why? Is she not at fault in that whole thing? No. Ultimately, Adam is responsible. Okay, so there's so much to say about this. And, and, and oftentimes, I think the ladies feel like, okay, you're somehow putting me down. In, 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 and that is absolutely not the case. What I am rather doing is I'm trying to call, if, if there's anything I'm doing, uh, talking to men and women, I'm talking to the men to say, do you know that in your family, God will come looking for you when it comes to the responsibilities of your family? Okay, so I'm not doing this to try to in any way put women down or in place or anything. I'm doing this to say, when I read scripture, it is speaking to men to say, you better take a responsibility to lead and to guide your family in a Christ-like way, because that seems to be what scripture is saying clearly. Okay, so I hope you hear me and hear the heart behind this. Listen to how Paul says it. Okay, Paul is going to look at Genesis chapter 2, and he's going to speak some things based upon Genesis chapter 2. Here's Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 7 through 12. He says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. Okay? But woman is the glory of man. Okay, let, let's just stop there. That sounds totally chauvinistic, Paul. Totally chauvinistic. Man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man. Where would you possibly get that? Verse 8. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Okay, so where's he going? Where, where is he at in scripture right now? He's, he's in our chapter, right? He's right here in Genesis 2, and he's arguing in the New Testament from from the old here. And he says in verse 9, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Again, totally chauvinistic sounding, but where's he getting it? Where's he getting it? He's getting it from Genesis, where woman is now created to be a helper for the man. And he's saying, that that's there, that's obvious. Now, he's saying this in 1 Corinthians, and he knows they have read this. So he's saying, let me just argue from Scripture what you already know is true in Scripture. Now, he says in verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head 
because of the angels. Now, I'm not going to get into that phrase, the angels. What does that mean? Let's push that aside for just a second. Verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. So do you see there's a cycle here? Like a man might be have a certain authority and responsibility over his wife, but at one point in his life, he's a suckling little baby, and he's been born out of a woman. And he, so Paul kind of sees a sense of, of a cycle going on here. And he says, there is no need to identify one as somehow superior to the other, but there is a clear role that's in place. Because what's the idea happening in 1 Corinthians 11? The idea happening here is what's proper in worship? How do you in the church recognize the fact that, uh, that, that for a wife, her husband is her head, he is her authority, and, and for a husband, this is my wife, and I'm going to care for her in that way. How do they show that in worship? That's the, that's the context. Now, in the Corinthian church, it had to do with wearing something on your head. But today, in our context, it might be a different, it might be something different. When you're at church, the way that you care for your husband, the way you speak about your husband, the way you, you know, things like that, there are things today that are the equivalent of what Paul was calling the church to do in 1 Corinthians 11. But the point I want you to see is that Paul is, or Paul's going back to Genesis 2 to argue why certain things are true today, which is what we're trying to do in our text. Okay, so how do we communicate that there is equality in our being between men and women, but that men and women play different functional roles in the church, in, in, in the home, specifically the fact that he is given a responsibility to lead and she is given a responsibility to come alongside and to help. And, and to me, I think the best way to communicate that is this big word called complementarianism. I, I don't like that word. I wish there was another word that would communicate all that we wanted to communicate here, but that's the word that I'm, that's something that some of you know, and it's something that I want to just take a second to argue for and just spelling out what exactly this means in a marriage, okay? What does it mean to have a complementarian marriage rather than the other view is called an egalitarian marriage, okay? Complementarian marriage, the husband and the wife are equal in their being, okay? That's what a complementarian says, okay? So this is not a, um, you know, like I've said before, this is not some patriarchal system where, where, where wives are pushed down or nothing. No, this is equality in their being. But the husband and wife play functional roles of headship for the man and submission for the wife within their marriage, okay? There are functional roles that they play where there's an authority for the man and there's a submission for the woman and they each play those roles within that marriage, both being co-heirs of grace, co-equal in the sense that of, of who they are before God. But here's egalitarianism, okay? Here's the difference. Egalitarianism says, okay, husband and wife are ontologically equal. They're equal in their being, agree? Okay, everybody agrees on that point? But then egalitarianism says, husband and wife are functionally equal. Functionally equal. In other words, they're just, you can flip those roles around. In fact, I think they would have to say they're really 
are no particular roles for one or the other. It's like there's a, there's a bunch of labor to be done around the family and it's like, okay, well, let me take this slice over here. I'll take this and you take this. Okay, so the wife says, oh, well, I'm gonna work full time and you stay home with the kids. And the husband goes, oh, okay, well, I guess that's what, that's what I'm supposed to do. And, and there's equality there. There's no sense in which one has a particular direction, vision, leadership, and the other one is saying, I'm gonna come alongside and tie into your direction that God has given you. They're sort of just, you know, we're both the same. And I believe that's wrong. Okay, now do I believe you're not a Christian for holding that? No, not at all. I'm just saying, I believe that's wrong. And I believe that ultimately leads to incredible frustration in marriage. And I believe the view of complementarianism, which says there are actual functional roles, I believe it leads to joy in general. Now, we're all sinners. And our marriages are sinful. But there is a sense in which a man can take joy in his leadership that God has called him to. And there's a sense that a woman can take joy in her coming alongside of the man that she has chosen to spend her life with, praying that he's Christ-like, praying that he's growing more towards Jesus, and saying, I want to come alongside and help you to be the best you can be because that's going to be for our whole family. That's going to be better for our whole family. And I believe that there is something in scripture which communicates that idea. Now, let's end like this. Is complementarianism correct? Is it there? Do we see it in scripture? I have a couple of points on this and we'll close. Number one, the Bible teaches, I believe, the Bible teaches complementary roles within marriage. We saw it in Genesis 2.18. Wife is supposed to come alongside and be the the helper of her husband. Genesis 3, 9, Adam is, God is calling to Adam and saying, where are you, Adam? Not where are you, Adam and Eve? Ephesians 5, and 23, here's what Paul says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. And then what does he say to husbands? This is oftentimes neglected in, the, in a preaching on this particular thing. Husbands, here's your job, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So anybody who thinks here that the husband is sort of off the hook, wives, they have to play the hard role of submission. Yeah, I, I, I admit it's hard for our hearts to want to do that. But let me tell you what's also impossible. Loving your wives like Christ loved the church. It's impossible. And it requires the Holy Spirit. And wives, it requires the Holy Spirit to submit to your husbands and be willing and glad to be able to do that. These things require the Lord. They can't be done in our flesh. Why else do I believe complementarianism is correct? Number two, the Bible teaches that men and women are different. Complementarianism accurately reflects those differences. One of, the part, one of the biggest issues I have with egalitarianism is it essentially flattens out men and women. It makes them, there is no particulars about a man and a particulars about a woman. And I believe that it's easy then to slide into where our world is today when it comes to things like transgenderism because gender is a construct, according to the world, 
and many egalitarians argue the same thing in a marriage. It is a construct that a man, for instance, goes away and works a full-time job and the woman is at home caring for the kids. That's a construct, they would say. And, and, I, and I would differ with that. I would say that there's something foundational to what it means to be a man to go out and be the breadwinner in your home. I know that that's controversial. And I want you to know that there are times in Lauren and my marriage where I was not the breadwinner because I was going, I was either going to school or there was some other thing going on where we agreed for a season of time that I would not be the one making the money for our family and my wife would have to go out and do that. But there is a time, there on the whole, on the normal, the normative aspect of your lives, I believe that there is something about a man being the primary income getter for the family. Doesn't mean that, what, ladies, doesn't mean you can't work. It means work out with your husband in, uh, how, how it is that you guys are going to run and order the family so that he is the one who is providing the main income. You might provide something on the side. You might provide something that, that, is, that is even equal to his, but there should be a sense that if push comes to shove and one of you has to step away from work, that it would be the wife before it would be the husband. I believe that's part of what we're called to do as men is to provide for our families. In fact, Ephesians chapter five says that one, I believe Paul was speaking to a man here, a man who does not provide for his own home is worse than an unbeliever. Okay. Harsh, harsh words coming from Paul in Ephesians or in, I'm sorry, first Timothy five, first Timothy five says that. And so we, 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 we want to be aware that there may be these roles in scripture. I wouldn't say may, I think there are these roles in scripture and we want to try to align our families in sync with that. And I believe that the complementarian view captures the differences between men and women. Now, um, Let's look at number three. Complementarianism reflects the nature of Jesus and his church. One of the reasons we don't simply get to just decide amongst ourselves, okay, you get to do this in the marriage. I get to do that in the marriage. Oh, let's flip it for a little while. Let's see if that works. Okay, let's bring it back. Let's, let's just move things around, right? It's fluid, right? One of the reasons we don't get to do that is because our marriages are meant to be a reflection of something greater. This is what Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter five. Wives, submit to your husbands. Don't just stop there though. As the church submits to Christ. Well, what's happening there? Paul is identifying that in marriage, there is a connection that other people outside of the marriage can look at and go, oh, this is, this is like that. Well, what's that? What are, we, what are we trying to image? Christ's relationship with the church. That means that your marriage or your future marriage, you have a purpose in your marriage. And your purpose is way, way more than, you know, hey, we get to have a honeymoon. We get to... You know, we've been, we've been holding off on, you know, into physical intimacy with one another. And now we get to have that. And won't that be great? And that's what a lot of single people think. You know, a lot of single people go into marriage going, that's what it's all about right there. Sex. 
And scripture would say, it is so much more than that. In fact, that act in and of itself is actually meant to communicate something else. It's actually meant to be a reflection, an image of, of something else that is greater and it's not sexual, it's not dirty, and it's not, it's something beyond that, that it's so incredibly profound, this thing that you are showing people in your marriage, in the way you interact with one another, in the way the husband takes on a authoritative, loving role, and the wife takes a submissive role, caring for, respecting her husband, and the two of them work together. The world can see that, and they get a tiny, tiny flavor through your marriage of what Christ is like with his church. And I believe it communicates to Christians and I believe it also communicates to non-Christians. In other words, your marriage has a special sense that sort of without words, and I know that we need the, we need the words of the gospel, but there is, aside from words, there is, a, there is a communication going forth of people watching the way you are in marriage and saying, okay, there's something there. There's something profound there. I might not know what it is, and that's where words come in, right? Let me tell you about what that is. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about what Jesus has done for his church. And by faith, you can enter in and be that church as well. Let me tell you about how he died, how he shed his blood, not for a wife that was perfect, this is all of us now. This is all of us who are the church. We are the bride of Christ. We are much more like Gomer in the story of Hosea. We are the prostitute. We are the ones who have soiled ourselves. And it's them, it's us whom Christ died for, paid the ultimate price of sacrificial love that we would be washed and adorned in white like a bride on her wedding day. And we would stand before him with no sin. That's what we're meant to image. That is what we are supposed to reflect. So husbands, get this. The role you play in this performance is Christ. That's your role. That's your part you play in this play. Wives, the role you play is the church. Christ in his perfection, the church, what it, but I thought the church is sinful. That's weird. No, I believe you play the role. You are increasingly being sanctified to play the role of Christ as it will be in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 and 8, at the end of all things. When Christ comes back, here's what the text says. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, which it later on it says are the righteous deeds of the saints. Wives, that's the part you have to play 
in a marriage. And when both sides are playing their part, there is a communication to the world at large outside of that, of just what Jesus is like with his church. So husbands, you have the sacrificial task of setting aside yourselves for your wives. Wives, you have the sacrificial task of submitting to your husbands and respecting them and caring for them. And all the while, both, when you're doing that, when you're increasingly by the power of the Spirit being sanctified to live more and more that way, you are honoring Jesus with the way you reflect and image him. And I believe that that's what marriage is actually all about. So may God give us grace. Those of us who are married, may God give grace to those who are going to be married at some point in the future. Some of you don't know. And may God give grace to the singles in our church as they grow to reflect Christ in a way that's even unique from the marriage of a man and a woman, but yet, yet reflecting and imaging him nonetheless. Let's ask God for grace now as we go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we ask you now to fill us with the power of your spirit for me to live as a husband who loves Lauren the way you have called me to. And to not just simply give lip service to this in a sermon, but to genuinely, with my heart, love her in ways that are, that are, are, are reflecting of who you are to your church. Help the men, Lord, to be Christ-like in their sacrifice, even to the point of giving up their lives for their wives and their children. And help the women, Lord, to reflect what it means to be your church, the blood-washed, blood-bought church that you have perfected for all times. I pray, Lord, you would give them the grace to not chafe under their husband's leadership, even when it's wrong, even when he makes mistakes, but to respect him and care for him. So God, I pray that you would help us, men and women, husbands and wives, individuals who are not yet married, who may never be married, to reflect you as we gather as a church, that the world would see more of who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.